Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Humility Gap podcast. I'm Bethan Willis, and throughout this series, I'll be talking to academics, politicians, and public figures to find out how we can become more open-minded. We'll be looking at the virtue of intellectual humility in order to help us really focus in on the habits and practices which can enable us to become more open-minded. In this episode, we talk to Philippa Stroud, a member of the House of Lords and CEO of the Legatum Institute. We talk about why trust, humility and other virtues are important for a flourishing society. And we also discuss why listening is a vital political skill and the importance of focusing on common goals as we seek to become more open-minded. So welcome to this episode of the Humility Gap podcast series. Today we're talking with Philippa Stroud at the Legatum Institute. Welcome, Philippa. Thank you. Um, So we're going to talk firstly a little bit about your career, um, the journey you've been on. Um, You've had a varied career. You founded uh, various projects working with people dealing with homelessness and addictions. And latterly, you've worked within policy and government. You've co-founded the Centre for Social Justice. You sit in the House of Lords. And now you are CEO of the Legatum Institute. Can you tell us a little bit about that career trajectory as we begin, and particularly what you've learned along the way about the challenges we face in seeking to understand each other, both across political divides and across differing life experiences? Yes, Beth. Um, So my journey um, started out in a kind of slightly unusual way. Um, On leaving university, I went to work in Hong Kong with drug addicts. And I had the privilege of living in a place called the Wall City, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, but was a slum area beside the old Kai Tak airport. And it had been left out of the treaty between Britain and China, and so had very much become a triad-controlled no-man's land. And um, I worked there with um, addicts and supported them to come off their addictions and with the families of addicts. I think one of the lessons that I learned there was that actually um, human beings feel exactly the same way about their children, um, their love for them, their commitment to them, um, how they respond to their environment, pain, etc. It's the same the world over. And um, we were dealing with and caring for uh, very, very broken people. Uh, But much of that Uh, was rooted back into uh, their poverty. Um, It was rooted back into um, family and um, to the opportunities they had or hadn't had. And uh, in Hong Kong, I was able to see one life change at a time and learn how to take somebody on that journey of one life changing at a time. Came back to the UK, um, started projects um, in Bedford and then in Birmingham, again, working with very disadvantaged people, homeless people, addicts, alcoholics, and was looking very much at how uh, community transformation can take place. Uh, But community transformation only happens with one life, and then another life, and then another life, and then another life. Um, And then I spent some time thinking, uh, for 17 years I did that sort of work, uh, very much seeing lives changed one at a time. But I looked back and and I could see that we were housing probably about 100 people a night, and that it had taken me kind of 17 years to get there. But the levels of brokenness that I saw across our communities were huge. And uh, down the road, there were another 100, and down another road, there were another 100. And I thought, we are never, ever, ever going to um, 
see this level of brokenness addressed just by one life at a time. And yet the root causes to these issues were um, universal. And so I thought, well, maybe, just maybe, if I got involved in public policy, we could get ahead of some of this problem and actually address some of the root causes of social breakdown in the UK. So that's why I came across into the world of politics. Mm. And that must have been quite a transition um, then moving from uh, working with those who are sort of seen as at the bottom of society to some of those working at the top. But you said, you've said already that people are the same the world over. But how, how have you um, dealt with bringing the experiences you've had um, into this arena, helping people to understand um, what, what you've seen, what uh, people's lives are really like? How, do you, how have you been trying to bridge um, places of understanding both on that, that theme of life experience and then working um, across political kind of um, divisions as well? So how's that been? So I think, I think for me, um, the whole motivation for this long journey has been to see the outcomes of very disadvantaged people improved and lifted. Um, so when I went into a public policy setting, first at the Centre for Social Justice and then in, into government, in my mind, whenever I was looking at a policy solution, I had the faces of hundreds and hundreds of people in my mind and I would think, would it have worked for them? Would it have worked for them? And if it wouldn't have worked for them, then um, actually let's not, let's not do this. And um, you, you very quickly um, can, can see very practical solutions that help people and that remove obstacles for people and ones that actually cause, cause problems and, and hardship. And actually a lot of the story of my time in government was the battle between those two different uh, dimensions. And lots of policy that gets proposed in government sounds good on paper but when it actually meets the individual in the disadvantaged community it's it's not helpful Mm. but do you think in general people are trying to do the right thing in government I think we have quite um stereotypical views of politicians at the moment that um, perhaps they're quite self-involved self-indulgent you know ambitious or arrogant various things like that and clearly there's a whole range of, of politicians um but do you find that mostly people are trying to do the right thing and do you think that um, politicians are able to understand um, the experiences of those outside their own kind of life experience? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that struck me um, kind of in my first few weeks of um, transitioning into the political world and I started meeting different politicians was just how motivated they are to, um, to want to make a difference and also how connected they are to their own constituents. Uh, the majority of MPs, for example, run uh, weekly surgeries in their constituency. They hear very, very first-hand stories of where uh, people are really struggling. And um, that actually makes them quite rooted and connected in their local community. So let's turn to think about your work with the Legatum Institute. You're overseeing um, a variety of work here, and the focus is on moving people from poverty to prosperity. Um, And as part of that, you've produced the Legatum Prosperity Index, 
And you're tracking a whole range of factors there which contribute to a country's prosperity. Um, so you've looked at economic measures, but also at social capital, which is the, the area I was particularly interested in. Um, and this year's figures suggest that social well-being in the UK is declining. And in particular, it raises the issue of trust in institutions. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, why social well-being is integral to prosperity, uh, firstly. And then this problem of trust in institutions. Um, why do we need um, elements like trust? And perhaps related to that are themes of open-mindedness and humility. Why do they help us prosper and flourish as a society? Yeah. Um, so the, um, the importance of social well-being cannot be um, overstated. And um, uh, for years, I've kind of looked at this issue of social well-being. And actually, politicians find it very difficult to talk about. They almost want to talk about anything other than this particular aspect. And one of the things that the Prosperity Index um, uh, notes is that the strength of family relationships and close friendships has declined in, in the UK. And it's like, um, if you're in trouble, do you have um, close family or friends that you can turn to? And there's a real decline in that. And yet there is a rise in the um, sort of trust that you would have in the workplace. Um, so those those less connected relationships, people are actually leaning on uh, more than would normally be the case. Normally, you would find your first port of call in your family and with your with your close friends, and that is leading to a decline in 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 social capital in in the country. And we've very much seen that in our work in in poor communities that levels of family breakdown. Um, levels of um, transient fatherhood. Um, these are all um, issues that are prevalent in disadvantaged communities. And one of the um, uh, aspects of our work, in fact, in our Social Metrics Commission work, actually shows um, a decline in trust, trusted relationships in your community as well, which is obviously really, really important. The trust in institutions is an interesting one, and I think has probably been highlighted in the in the in the Brexit vote, if I'm allowed to mention the the, the B word. Um, in that, um, you know, half of the British population feel that the system is working for them, uh, the status quo was working for them, and the other half of the population doesn't feel like the status quo. Uh, was working for them. They they didn't feel like their community was being protected. They didn't feel like there were the opportunities in employment, um, in schools for their children, in healthcare, in housing opportunities. So some of the institutional kind of trust um, has been eroded there. And I think it's really important that we seek to rebuild that. But I think that that will come as we have a different dialogue as we have a dialogue uh, between both groups of people and actually where we sit and listen to one another, we really try and put ourselves in the shoes of somebody who holds a different opinion to us. Another area of work within um, the Legatum Institute that's that's uh, perhaps related to this is that you've chosen to take a focus on character um, within your projects around cultural transformation. So do you just want to tell us a little bit about why this is? Is it related to this kind of building uh, social capital um, theme um, and what do you hope to achieve through your focus on character? Talking to um, some other people working in this area recently, um, we were wondering whether um, talking about character is just an opportunity for middle class introspection sometimes. So how do you stop it being that? How do you make it something that really 
does the sort of foundational work that creates change? Great question. I think for me, um, this started uh, two or three years ago. Um, I was I was sitting in the House of Lords and there was a question um, that was asked, which is, uh, what is the government doing about match fixing in the sports industry? And I got out a pen and paper and I went, um, match fixing in the sports industry, hacking scandal in the media industry, expenses scandal in the world of politics, um, banking crisis and libel scandal in the city, um, then abuse scandal in the international aid world. And what I could see was that every single area of society was um, ill at ease with itself and that these issues were rooted back um, to issues of character. And yet in the public square, we hardly ever talk about character. And um, so the reason why we started a focus here was that we wanted just somewhere in um, the Westminster kind of world and the world of the, the kind of public square in the UK, where regularly we were thinking about issues of character. And we, you know, I, I sit in, in a legislative chamber where more and more regulation is being passed. And actually the regulation is being passed because we don't trust human responses. That regulation doesn't need to be there if actually we trusted human beings to do the right thing in every single circumstance. And those come from a place of character. And um, my staff here make 100,000 decisions um, uh, in, the, in the privacy of their own world, which I trust them to make um, without regulating them, because I, I believe in them as people. Now, we need to build um, our media world like that, our world of politics like that, where we have uh, people of character um, that, that leads to a trusted environment. Mm. Yes, we're back to that theme of trust again. It's mm. so important, isn't it? So moving on, it seems we're living in a time of um, deep political divisions and polarisation. Um, and you've touched on your, your time in Parliament already. As a parliamentarian, do you think um, looking to cultivate virtues like intellectual humility, which is the one we're particularly concerned with, can help us to tackle the problems we currently face? Or is it um, slightly naive? And I'm particularly thinking about the way that we interact with politicians these days, and this is often done through the media, isn't it? Um, do virtues like humility translate well onto a national stage? Um, are people ready to um, recognise them, or do they simply see them as weaknesses rather than strengths? So it's interesting, actually. Um, I was thinking about um, the conversation that we were going to have, and um, it kind of when you when somebody says, "Can I come and talk to you about humility?" You think you kind of panic and think, "Oh my <laughs> word, um, really? I'm not somebody to speak about humility." Um, so I was just googling it, and um, C.S. Lewis said that humility is not thinking less of yourself; it is thinking of yourself less. And I thought that was really important when it comes to people who are um, public servants and who have actually made a decision that they're going to move into the world of politics as an act of service and to serve not only their own constituents, but the nation as a whole. And um, at the moment, our whole world of politics is set up for um, key messages, lines to take, 
um, output, I'm on broadcast, I'm telling you what I think. Whereas actually, um, uh, if I'm thinking of myself less and I'm thinking of the people I'm serving more, actually I want to move more into a listening mode. I want to hear what you have to say. I want to understand the perspective that you are um, living with. And I think that often, you know, they say that you come into politics and um, a, government, a government will come in and then like 10 years later, they'll have no ideas left. But part of that is, have they actually stopped listening? They stopped hearing what people are saying. Have they lost that connectedness? Um, so I, I think that actually humility, if it is thinking less about myself and more about the public that I'm supposed to be serving, then it's absolutely crucial to have um, politicians who are rooted in humility. Mm. Yeah, so that they're listening well. But then also speaking with humility, I guess, bringing all of those perspectives. Well, if they're then so. speaking from an informed position of... Um, and obviously they need to work out their own thinking on what they've been told. That is, that is their responsibility too. But they should be reflecting back uh, what they are hearing. And I think some of that connection has, has been lost. What do you think we can do to improve that? Is it just down to individual politicians? Are there things that collectively um, we can do to improve that kind of feedback? Yes, yeah, so I think, um, I do think that listening and hearing is, is really crucial and having the sort of conversations where we are not attacking people, um, we, where we don't go ad hominem on somebody, but even if they hold a different uh, perspective from ourselves, we engage in those ideas and we need to move from a place where we attack the person to a place where we, we engage in ideas. And if those ideas threaten us, then we need to have better ideas that, that then kind of defeat those ideas. But we shouldn't just shut ourselves off from them or silence them or say you are a bad person. We need, we need better ideas that defeat. Mm, yeah. So, yeah, just separating out ideas from people, really important. Yeah. So let's think about a particular example um, of where you've actually worked through a particular problem with a group from uh, right and left from a variety of policy perspectives um, and experiences. And that's within the Social Metrics Commission, uh, where you've drawn together a diverse group um, to think about poverty in the UK, how we understand it and how we measure it. And I think it's been really successful, hasn't it? And generally seemed to be so. And that's quite an extraordinary, particularly at this time, that you've managed to gather that diverse group. So can you tell us a little bit about how that worked, what you've achieved, and particularly that sort of process, how you went about it? Yeah. Um, going back to the beginning of it, um, so when I was, um, when I was in government, um, first of all, we were in a coalition government. So already we were in very close dialogue, conservative to Liberal Democrat. And what I found with the um, Liberal Democrats was that behind closed doors, um, we would actually um, say, I would say, you know, um, poverty is about family breakdown, failed education, addiction, mental health, debt and welfare dependency, but it is also about money. And they would say, yes, it's about money, but it's also about family breakdown, failed education, addiction, mental health, debt and welfare dependency. Then... We started working with Alan Milburn from the Child Poverty and Social Mobility Commission uh, from the Labour uh, Party. And behind closed doors, I would say to him, 
you know, poverty is about family breakdown, failed education, addiction, mental health, debt and welfare dependency. And it's also about money. And he would say, yes, it's about money. And it's also about family breakdown, failed education, addiction, debt, etc. You get the picture. And I kind of thought, if we have Conservatives, Labour and Liberal Democrats behind closed doors, able to see that poverty is this much broader concept than only about money, but that it is about money, but it is about these other things as well, then if we can all have as our objective the desire to improve the lives of those who are disadvantaged and in poverty and keep that absolutely central in our thinking and um, build a commission Uh, where we can grow in trust of one another and really communicate very clearly with one another, then I think we could get to a place where actually we could develop a good measure that could then go on and develop excellent strategies that were really effective in helping disadvantaged people. And so it was from that basis of the fact that we, in these behind-closed-doors conversations, we were able to have these conversations that we were able to kind of found, found the commission. And, um, and it was a real kind of revelation. I realised that I came to see that people thought I held views that I didn't hold. And um, I came to see that people who I assumed held views didn't hold those views. And we did have um, an amazing two and a half, nearly three years of working working together, and we're still actually working as a group together now because the experience has been so so valuable to us. Uh, but we did have some ground rules for that conversation. One of the ground rules was, I don't know where your sensitivities lie on this. I don't know where your unexploded landmines are that I'm just about to tread on. Right. <laughs> um, and so when I do tread on them, Please just believe that actually you and I have exactly the same interest at heart. Let's have a proper dialogue about this rather than believe the worst of one another. And you have, you know, you tell me what I've just done or what I've just said that has kind of touched one of the hotspots for you. And let's talk that through rather than just believe the worst of one another and that we don't care about uh, people in poverty. And that's that's the way we kind of found, found our way through. There were times when um, we were getting a bit stuck and we had to take a step back and um, slow things down a bit and really listen to what one another was saying mm. and then we could kind of come back together again mm. and then keep working keep working forward. And, you know, people have said to us, so where are all the compromises? And there genuinely aren't any. We genuinely did this uh, by listening to one another. That's amazing. So it sounds like it's been propelled by goodwill and also this very strong common cause that you really all want a good yeah. outcome for others because it's not even it's not an us. outcome for yourself, no. is it? Um, which is really interesting. You must all have been open to change to some extent as well, to, as you were saying earlier, to really listening. Yeah. And that listening will change you, presumably, and change perhaps the contours of your thinking, not necessarily, you know, the, the core of... of how you think or what you think is important but there must be kind of edges that are shaved off or slight changes that you make along the way is that right or not well it was really interesting so um just understanding how people hear what you're saying is so important 
Um, so when I was at the Centre for Social Justice, we used to talk about the pathways to poverty being family breakdown, failed education, addiction, debt and welfare dependency. Now, what I didn't realise was that when we said that, people on the left heard, we don't think it's at all about money. But for us, that was just a given that actually poverty was about not having enough money to to live on, but that there were some other factors here as well. It was really important for me to hear how other people translated what I was saying and when that wasn't what I was saying at all. And it's actually really helped me articulate much more clearly and much more sensitively um, what I think about um, poverty. Yeah. And that's that's huge, isn't it? We can help each other to articulate yeah. our ideas much better if we can, yeah, kind of take the time yeah. and and um, put the effort in. That's that sounds just such a productive process, and lots of learning points there for um, us as well. So finally, I think in a few words, what can we all do, leaders and followers, to improve the character of our current political discourse? What can we take from, say, your social metrics commission learning? Um, that we can apply in everyday life in in all forms? Excellent question. (laughs) Um, So I I think one of the mistakes that we we make is that um, we move to a battle over solutions too early. Whereas actually, oftentimes, we can be a lot more united in our objectives. Mm -hmm. So... Um, you know, if you were to take looked after children, for example, and you were to take the left and right kind of policy approaches to looked after children, actually, everybody wants good outcomes for looked after children. Mm -hmm. So let's start there with um, a stated objective that we want a good outcome together. And then let's, let's listen and engage with each other's solutions so that we can actually Um, really understand what someone's saying rather than just try to score political points from them by um, declaring difference. And I think that's what we often try and do is is like drive a wedge of difference, whereas actually um, a community might really benefit from a, a more holistic response that would come from taking a broader set of solutions rather than just one pot of solutions. I think that's something that's that's really important. And I think the second thing is that I do think that social media has made us a lot more adversarial and is almost a race to the bottom of human character and um, causes those ad hominem attacks that I was talking about. And they're very, very destructive to public dialogue and um, and to the proper exchange of ideas and from learning from one another. And um, actually, societies have advanced historically by sharpening ideas in the public square and by not being fearful of doing that. And it's really important at this juncture in history that we don't, we're not frightened of ideas and we're not frightened of the free exchange of ideas and the sharpening of ideas. And that will only happen when we refuse to attack people and we actually um, exchange ideas effectively in the public square. That's really helpful. Thank you so much, Philippa. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank you.